This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. The Big Interview with Offscript. Now, Rob has been in conversation with somebody he actually has something of a personal connection with. Yeah, that's right, Sones. Yes, I've been chatting to Jeffrey Archer, best-selling English author, former politician. We're not going to get into his political career because it did end in ignominy and it actually ended in a jail sentence. So I wanted to stay well away from that. But yeah. he has become and gone into become subsequently one of the best-selling authors in the world alive today. He's sold over 320 million copies. What? It's I, an insane number of books. I didn't even uh, know he was a politician that he had a different career before being an author because I, I only did. know him as that. And the worst yeah. thing is I only know him as a disgraced politician really? and not uh, as an author. Huh. No. Well, he was former deputy chairman of the Conservative Party in the, in the mid-1980s. Uh, he was a member of the British Parliament in the 60s, uh, into the 70s as well. And, and subsequently, look, we don't want to get into his early political career because the subject that we're talking about is the Emirates Festival of Literature and Jeffrey's appearance out here in Dubai. Now, yes, there is a personal connection because um, my grandfather was a literary agent who represented Jeffrey and actually became very good friends with Jeffrey back in the day. So I was really keen to chat to him for that reason. He had some wonderful recollections of my granddad, which I'm not going to bore you with because that's not really pertinent or relevant to the subject at hand. But oh, it was, like it was great. I'd like to hear how he reacted. It was great. No, it was fantastic. You know, it was just he had a couple of lovely little anecdotes about, you know, working with um, with my grandpa. And it was just yeah, it, was, it was great to hear him because he's 82 now um, and he's still going strong. He's still writing at a prolific rate. He's actually out for two sessions at the Festival of Literature. He's um, he's got two. He's got Next in Line Fact or Fiction. Now, Next in Line is his latest book out. And um, it's part of an ongoing series he's writing about an ambitious policeman. His other um, session is Do You Want to Write a Bestseller? And given that the man has written 28 novels, nine short stories and four children's books, I wanted to kick off by asking, do the rules for writing a bestseller remain the same today as they were when Jeffrey wrote his first novel, which was called Not a Penny More, Not a Penny Less, all the way back in 1976? Yes, but if you go back to 1976... There were only three television programs. Radio was dominant and and very special. But uh, the truth is that today there are 10 times as many authors and there are 100 times as many television stations. So the big difference is the competition. Mm. There's never been such fierce competition just to get a book published, let alone Uh, get on the bestsellers list, or indeed dare to go to number one. So if you go right the way back and think of Dickens, he had no rivals at all. He produced the book and everybody read it. There were one or two fine writers at the time and he was the best, but, and he'd do brilliantly today because he's a brilliant, he was a brilliant storyteller. But the big difference is the competition. So does that mean that if there were no competition, then Chris could write a book and it would instantly be a bestseller? Is that the idea? Well, I just think his point is that, you know, it's like everything, right? The saturation, it's much harder to get noticed. 
you know, when you're the first of, of, of whatever it may be, if you're the first influencer, if you're the first author, if you're the first, you know, TV star, it's that much easier, right? You've got less, less people to sort of beat off, if that makes sense. But um, I wanted to know how or, or whether an aspiring novelist struggles to get noticed in this hyper competitive domain. Does one need a huge slice of luck or, you know, a huge marketing machine behind them? Or is being a genius writer enough? You might need a little bit of luck. I would accept that. But if you really are a class storyteller, uh, you'll pick it up in three books because enough people will read you and want your next book. Uh, my first book, Not a Penny More, Not a Penny Less, sold 3,000 in hardback. My second book, Shall We Tell the President, sold 18,000 in hardback. My third book, Cain and Abel, sold 2 million in hardback. Uh, and it's the public who decide. No one else. They make the decision. And uh, I've been very privileged and lucky. They've stayed with me for 40 years. But the answer to your question is, if you are a storyteller monkey, then you will make it in time. And you've offered in, in interviews in the past, Jeffrey, you've made that distinction between being a storyteller and a writer. How would you define that? I think if you're well read and you're well educated, there is no reason why you shouldn't be able to write a good book. But the ability to tell a story, to start once upon a time and make you turn the page is a totally different skill. It's the difference between an opera singer and Frank Sinatra. One can't do what the other does, although they both had amazing gifts. So you need to get the to be the storyteller. You need a gift to be a, a writer. You need to be very well read, very well educated. And when you get the combination of both, that's when you get a Stefan Zweig. You get that very rare combination of someone capable of winning the Nobel Prize, but also capable of making you turn the page. Rob, you can't see our faces right now, but Chris and I are really enjoying this. <laughs> yeah, he's great. Yeah, no, he, he is. And he's he's got a, a certain delivery, hasn't he? I mean, don't forget, he's 82. That oh. needs to be remembered. And he's still, he is still producing books at a phenomenal rate. And at that point, with the whole kind of craftsman versus artist, I was so tempted to reference Messi, Ronaldo, Federer, Djokovic, but I wanted to stay on point. There were a couple of moments in the interview where Jeffrey wasn't particularly nice to me. Um, and, uh, and I'm going to take that as a form of bizarre affection uh, because of course there is a family link he was um, chastising me a couple okay. of times you, you might hear it I can't remember whether I left it in the clips or not but if I did don't worry I don't think he meant anything by it is what I'm trying to say but <laughs> but I wanted to get to the bottom of how he became a writer and I asked was it a calling did it happen by accident it turns out that those two suggestions not for the first time sparked his ire now, you couldn't be more wrong, you useless individual. <laughs> I wanted to be Prime Minister and Captain of the England cricket team. I had, I had I read failed, that. <laughs> I failed hopelessly at both and began writing by mistake. Not a penny more, not a penny less was simply, I thought, was a good story. But it only sold 3,000 copies, Robbie. I mean, it was not a success. And it made for me £3,000. So it wasn't... No, uh, you must remember Proust's great line, we all end up doing the thing that we're second best at. <laughs> right, OK. And what were you best at? 
Well, obviously, it, well, was, I, it was sprinting, wasn't it, originally? Well, I ran for my country, yes, yeah. you're right, but I was nat- the natural captain of the England cricket team. <laughs> it was just a pity I couldn't bat, bowl or field, which seemed to be a minor disadvantage, but one mustn't let these things get the better of you. Relevance is the refuge of the inhibited. So uh, I should have been captain of the England cricket team. <laughs> what a man. Seriously, do you think that you're doing the thing you're second best at? No, I think this is what I'm 12th best at. No, in all, in all honesty, it probably... It is. It probably, <laughs> probably is, yeah. It's oh, actually dear. deflated me thinking that, so it really has. Well, listen, if, it, if Jeffrey accepted it and had a wonderful career, Chris, you know, that you can maybe well, take a little bit of inspiration from that. I did point out to him, by the way, that England weren't doing too badly under Ben Stokes and Brendan McCullum, which seemed to cheer him up a little bit. But um, back to writing. And here's some insight on Jeffrey's creative process. How has this evolved over the years? And how does he go about tackling each book? I think the storytelling, if that's what you mean by creative process, is constant. Right. That is a constant. I think after 40 years, I'm a better craftsman, and I, but I still, Robbie, I still do 14 drafts of every book. I haven't found a shortcut. So anyone who wants to be a writer, please don't think you can knock it off next weekend. A book takes me a thousand hours, 14 drafts. And I'm st- it's still taking me that. And more important, on the last book, the one you have in front of you, next in line, I changed a massive thing on the 13th draft. Oh, wow. I changed com- character completely on the 13th draft. So, and that can happen. You're going through a book and you think it's going well and, it's full, and then you get a good new idea. You have to sit down and start again. Do you craft your characters before the plot takes shape? Or do you have a, a rough idea of, of what plot you want to explore and then bring the characters in? Well, William Warwick, who is now reached uh, a superintendent, uh, has been building his character since the days he was a constable in book one and then a sergeant, then an inspector, chief inspector. Now he's a superintendent. And in the next book, he'll be a chief superintendent. So that character has building. His sidekick, now a chief inspector, Ross Hogan, who's a bit of a a risk taker and great fun. I enjoy writing him. Uh, Their characters are there. And his wife, Beth, is my wife, Mary. I always tell people, write about people you know about. And the reader will know that they'll feel at home with that. You don't have to invent someone. You don't have to make a completely different character that you've never come anywhere near in touch with. Uh, so, yes, the characters build themselves, but uh, frankly, it wouldn't matter how good the characters were. You, in the end, you've got to have a story. I did enjoy his sort of name shout-outs, almost the way Rob seems to do them every time he tells us a story. That's it, caught his eye. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it did make me think as well. We all know someone, right? And I, I'm not going to say, and I know you guys aren't either, but we all know someone we write about, don't we? <laughs> You know, it's like if you think about it, as you just said there, you write about the people you know. Yeah. There's people in your life you think, yep, you'd be a character in my book. (laughs) 
care to uh, share any names, Rob? Absolutely not. Not publicly, absolutely not. But um, Jeffrey's most popular book is called Cain and Abel, of course, you know, taken obviously directly from the biblical tale. And it sold approaching 50 million wow. copies. It tells the story. It's a fascinating book, this. It tells the story of two men born worlds apart whose lives become inextricably linked. Cain is an American born into wealth. Abel is a Polish immigrant who was born into poverty and became a self-made man. And I asked, where did Jeffrey draw the inspiration for this idea and then flesh out quite a complex plot? It's very interesting you say that because you can describe Cain and Abel in one minute. You simply say... Cain and Abel is the story of two men, one born with everything, one born with nothing. They only meet once and it changes their whole lives, Cain and Abel. It's a very simple story. Of course, it's 650 pages later. <laughs> you've, actually, you've actually got the book. Yeah. But I have to say to you in all honesty, Robbie, it was a shock for me too. It's, and, it's, and it's been read by 100 million people. Uh, and frankly, uh, when they did the auction for it 40 years ago, I was staggered by the result. And I was staggered by the reaction across the world. Uh, you can't anticipate that as an author. You can't go, you can't know it's going to happen. It was, uh, it was staggering. What is it about Cain and Abel specifically, Jeffrey, that you think that just keeps people coming back for more and keeps in, uh, you know, discovering fresh readers? I think it's, it's, it's simply ambition and attainment. People see these two men, the one thing they have in common is a desire to be the best at what they do and to get to the very top. And I think there's a lot of people out there who associate with either Cain or Abel. And, and, and I think that divides probably pretty 50-50. But the answer to your question is it's it's ambition and attainment they see in themselves and would like to do what they do. I think, I think. And is that something that you feel is, is a strong quality of your own? One never has any idea about, uh, I mean, I'm an ambitious man. Uh, I still want to captain, I'm 82. I still want to captain the England cricket team. So yes, <laughs> I am an ambitious man. <laughs> Uh, and, but I work hard. I work very hard indeed. Um, but yes, it may be that I see in those characters something I want to achieve myself. Yes, I think that's possible. Now, Rob, I know you can't see our text line, so I have to read some of these to you. Um, Kev's been in touch to say Cain and Abel was a brilliant TV show, also back on BBC back in the day. His books of short stories are brilliant. Ian has gone on to say best interview ever on off script. What? What yeah. a claim. <laughs> wow. Is Jeffrey listening on VPN in the UK <laughs> going as Ian. Thanks for that. Yeah. yeah, I'm really happy to hear that. That's fantastic that people are enjoying it. And uh, we've heard a lot about Jeffrey's career and how he got into it. I wanted to sort of broaden the conversation out and talk a little bit about the state of books, reading, and, and the way that technology's impacted that. Because, you know, there's no doubt that with all of the attention deficit disorders and all the kind of distractions that we have in this technological age, I wanted to kind of find out, has this been catastrophically detrimental for reading? And does Jeffrey fear for young people? They have many distractions nowadays. They live on telephones. You have to remember this sort of tele telephone mania has happened in the last 10 years. And so the distractions are much greater than they ever were. But the book sales across the world, 
not mine, but sales generally across the world are still very strong. Mm. And I think whereas we've seen, for example, in print, newspapers, magazines suffer tremendously and and have to move into that digital world, it feels like the books, there is a a certain kind of solace to be found in in reading. The, the, The physical copy of a book seems to have retained its importance to people. Well, my sales in Kindle are 37% are they? of my sales are in Kindle and 9% in audio and over 50% in, in uh, real books, thank heavens. So you're, you're absolutely right uh, about that and long may that be. But the good thing about Kindle is that it's a lot of people now, that's the only way they read. Uh, and so we capture them as well. So that's another outlet for the writer another chance to be read. So Kindle is a good thing. What is the future for books, do you believe, Geoffrey, in the next 10, 15 years? Well, as far as I can remember, uh, Robbie, over 60 years, uh, books are going to die tomorrow. (laughs) And here we are 60 years later, and they're still with us, and they're still flat out, and there are still millions of people reading. So I think the... uh, claim the book is dead is premature. And I have to say, I really resonate with what he was saying about the distractions, because you're talking about young people there, Rob, but it's not just young people. I used to be able to bury my nose in a book and not come up for air for about Mm. two days. Whereas now I really struggle to get, let's say, a whole hour without at least a sneaky glance at my phone. It pulls you out for a minute, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And um, when we interview our man who, of course, wrote the awesome blog... I've actually taken inspiration from that because I'm I'm actually going to t- make a massive effort this year to try to up my reading, not not to sort of read 50 books or whatever it is in a year, but try try to up my rate of reading. And, and speaking of Jeffrey, actually, really inspired me as well. And, and the other thing I wanted to get his thoughts on was, you know, these are sensitive times we know that we're living in as well. And, and recently in the US, uh, an author called Laura Wilder, who was uh, who wrote the Little House on the Prairie books, she had her name stripped from a literary prize. 60 years after her death because of views expressed in a children's book published between 1932 and 1943. And there are those who believe Enid Blyton, Roald Dahl, they may be in the crosshairs of today's moralists. And I wanted to get Jeffrey's thoughts on that. Well, it's a tricky situation because what we've got is 50 years ago, before I started writing, uh, there were things written in books that are unacceptable today but they were of their time. And if you want to study them historically, you will see they were of their time. And they're now uh, unacceptable. And that I understand totally. Uh, But as I've had, I think I can say, hand on heart, very few prejudices in my life, that's never been a problem for me. Mm. Do you think this impedes or or hinders new authors when they go setting about on their their journey to write? Well, they're being very careful now, yes. Mm. They're being very careful what they say. And publishers are going back to them saying, look, on page 34, you said that. That's not acceptable any longer. Yep, that's the new age we live in. And this is never going to end. The thing is, it's all those people pointing the finger, you know, 
50 years from now, people are going to be calling us all barbaric. Of course. Yeah, so, I, I think it's like buildings. I think you, you've got listed buildings, you know, in various parts of the world that you cannot touch. And I think you need to get listed books. You need to get some level of protect, protection so that people who, you know, are, are up on the pulpits preaching, they cannot just go and run roughshod over books that, again, as Jeffrey points out, they were products of their time. And I wanted to get what the future held for Jeffrey as at the age of... I think into his early 80s now, has his passion for writing shown any signs of diminishing? I'm 82. I've just signed a new three-book contract. So I will continue doing a book a year, mm. and I'll stop when I'm not enjoying it, Robbie. I really enjoy it. I still I can't I wait to get rid of you and get back to the <laughs> next session where I've probably... got my man in the court and I've got real problems. So I'm looking forward to that. You're just a different sort of problem. <laughs> Clearly this was nearing the end of your interview, I hope. It was actually midway through it. <laughs> we ended up speaking about English cricket for 10 minutes. And then randomly, he, he did uh, share a lovely anecdote on uh, about my, my grandfather, which it was, he would bounce between insulting me and being extremely lovely to me as well um but let's just have one more we'll squeeze one more clip in because with the emirates festival of literature around the corner i wanted to know a book we should all read stefan zweig beware of pity it's a masterpiece he's that rare combination of a truly great writer and a truly great storyteller now if you don't like fiction which is understandable some people don't he was also a great non-fiction writer, and his studies of Europe in the 1930s are classic. Uh, so you, you, it doesn't matter whether you're like novels or, or non-fiction, he's your man. He also wrote a brilliant novella called Chess, and he wrote wonderful uh, love stories uh, of that period, and they were short stories. He says that with such conviction. I'm running out to buy that right after the uh, he show. Does. Yeah, yeah, without doubt. It's on my list already. Yeah, absolutely. And if a guy that sold 320 million books or at least had had that many readers around the world, if he's making a recommendation with that yeah. level of enthusiasm, it's probably worth looking it out. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks so much for that, Rob. And of course, as you mentioned, he'll be here for the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 